Hello and welcome to the Jungle Brothers Podcast. I'm your host, Joey, and today's episode is a chat about food with Shannon Harley. Shannon is an editor, a writer, and a storyteller, and she was a chief editor of Delicious Magazine, where she's now a, a writer for them. Uh, she travels the world, she loves food, she loves investigating the cultural significance of food, finding out what it is that brings people together around a table, finding, uh, finding out about what it is that that makes these uh, unique food cultures evolve around the world and their significance within that place. And today's chat was all around good nutrition, but looking outside of the general scientific elements we look at. So not talking about calories, not talking about how many grams of protein or how much carbohydrates, but looking at those other aspects of food and why they're sometimes equally or just as important in a healthy balanced diet. So we're talking about the cultural significance of food. We're talking about what behaviors uh, you need to have in order to have a healthy relationship with food. So that comes down to how you're sourcing it, how you view it, but then also uh, how you prepare it. So behaviors in the kitchen. Uh, we talk about being resourceful in the kitchen and I kind of quiz Shannon on some of her sort of best techniques or best tips for people who are trying to develop, I guess, better skills in the kitchen. One of the great things that we face with health uh, on an individual basis, and this is coming from my time, obviously, with Jungle Brothers, and when we work in the gym, we're, we're trying to teach people how to train. That's kind of, we're really good at that. We try and teach them how to eat. We're pretty good at that. But the thing is, is when someone goes home and they, they've got to go buy their own groceries and prepare their own food, it can be really hard if you don't have good techniques or you don't have the right awareness around that sort of whole side of nutrition, Preparing good, healthy food can just be really challenging. So it could be due to a lack of interest. It might be due to a lack of skill, or maybe it's just not something you've ever thought about. So in today's episode, we try and dive into that. And my hope is that for you listening is that you can get a couple of cool takeaways. There's also some really beautiful stories about um, the, the romance of food and Shannon's time traveling and some of the great observations she's picked up from, from having these amazing culinary experiences around the world. But yeah, a lot of practical takeaways in there. It was a really cool episode. I enjoyed the hell out of it. Um, it's obviously very central to the Jungle Brothers philosophy around food. We do feel very strongly about you have to eat the right things, but you also have to have a good relationship with it and you have to enjoy food. And it has to, it, it's something that unites a community and we're big on community. And so food is central to that. So anyway, uh, let me let Shannon do the talking. I hope you guys enjoy this episode. As always, if you do enjoy it, please share it with a friend, pass it on. It helps to support the show and it helps to spread quality information and, and good discussion out there. Uh, Paul and T were not with me today. T is coming back onto the show in a couple of weeks. I know I keep saying that, but he told me that he is. Hopefully the next episode after you listen to this one will be with him. Uh, and Paul is obviously with me pretty much every other week. But uh, yeah, th today it was just Shannon and I Awesome chat around food. I hope you enjoy. And after you listen to this one, go and eat something delicious. Shannon Harley, thank you for joining me today. I apologize for the 30 minutes of technical issues we just you had to endure just now. Um, that's all right. I am actually the world's least punctual person. So starting 30 minutes after the start time is totally on time for me. Anyway, I'm just glad it was you and not me. <laughs> Mate, um, we've had a few chats leading up to this, but uh, it, I, wanted to, um, I wanted to give a little intro to you and then give a bit of context about what we're going to talk on today. Mm -hmm. um, you, you obviously train at our gym. You've been at Jungle Brothers. I checked it. You've been with us for five months only, and I think it's probably been more of that time in lockdown than not. Totally. <laughs> uh, but that said, you integrated into the fabric of our gym 
in uh, immense fashion. You be, you know, you were instantly, it's like you'd been there for 10 years, you know, hadn't been there for a couple of weeks. Um, so thank you. We appreciate that. You are, you're into food. When I look at your Instagram and I look at your webpage and I, and I, and I'm sort of doing a bit of research about what you do, I can tell that you're into food from when I, um, I think I brought you some lemongrass that I was growing at home. You were like, I'll take some of that. And I was like, ah, oh, she's into food. Um, and then I looked, I looked deeper and you have forged a career out of writing about food. You've been a, you're a journalist. Uh, you're an editor as well, right? So delicious AU. You obviously, you, you work a lot for them. I believe you were uh, there. Um, you were their editor for six years. Am I right? Yeah. Yep. Research uh, on point. Okay. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, and then you started a business, which I want you to tell us about because someone told me that you had this business where you were um, helping parents make healthy meals for school children. Yeah. <laughs> can, you tell, can you tell us what that, I know, tell us what that business is. I love that idea. Okay. Well, that business is called Hot Potato and it is actually in a deep state of hibernation right now. Um, basically, I started it during the first lockdown. I just moved back. Uh, I'd been living in London and I moved back home and was thinking um, about what my next career step would be. Would I get back into magazines? Would I write? Obviously, as a food and travel writer, my options for writing were pretty limited given Norm was eating out and Norm was traveling. And it basically was a, that typical kind of startup um, thing that I wasn't thinking about starting a business, but I just saw the problem and then thought I could maybe offer some kind of solution that would be useful. And it came from seeing a lot of my girlfriends who have kids who are homeschooling, who are working from home, basically suffering this immense mum guilt about what to feed their kids. And I'm not talking mums who are, you know, feeding their kids a diet of chicken tonight and roll-ups like I grew up on. I'm talking mums who are already making chia puddings and, you know, chicken curries for their, for their toddlers. So mums who are already going to great effort and then still feeling really guilty about it. So Hot Potato, um, I founded it with my brother. He is um, very much into health and fitness, but he's also just an absolute startup fiend. So he kind of provide the real business mouse for me and just helped me in the background. And we started it with the, um, I guess, manifesto to nourish children and empower parents. So it was looking at healthy food, but then it was also looking at the other health elements around food, which is enjoying time together, enjoying time with another human, um, being able to spend time at the table. And we thought if we could, if we could take having to cook shop prep and cook the food out of the equation, then we'd be able to inject that time that families could enjoy together at home. So that's a really good, um, that paints a really good picture about what I, what I want to get into today, uh, which is, you, you know, so obviously the, everything you've said there would resonate with people, right. Who are living a busy life and even people who don't have kids, but are maybe cooking for themselves. It's like, Oh, it's fucking hard. And I feel like I'm not making the best decisions and shopping's difficult and getting inspiration and whatever. Um, but everything that you just mentioned sort of alludes to this idea of food being more important or being something bigger than simply just like the calories that you're getting and how it's, you know, whatever, helping you to reach your, your, your training goals. Because say on our podcast and in our gym, we talk about that a lot. It's like, how much protein do you eat? Do you need to eat to build muscle? And, um, you know, yeah, keep the carbohydrates here and fats good or not. Like it's all very kind of technical parts about nutrition in order to reach usually a weight loss or a muscle gain goal. However, it doesn't really pay any, um, any airspace to the, the, I guess the more the cultural elements of food, 
enjoying it, how you feel about it, your relationship with it, um, that sort of thing. And, th- that, and that's really part of the family element. Can you talk on what your, like how you sort of view food in, a little bit more through that lens? Absolutely. I think um, just kind of reflecting back on what you just said, it, it's really easy to get stuck in the weeds and really reductionist on any topic that you're really into. Um, so obviously for training, if you can, if you can, you know, push the dial 1% by eating a certain food or focusing on macros, you know, I can understand how we get there. But if we kind of zoom out and look at how do we make more people around the world enjoy better food, healthier food, and enjoy a healthier and happier experience around food probably is about being less granular. And as you said, kind of seeing food in the much bigger social, social context, you know, that, that it exists in food is produced by the land, by people. So food is already an environmental, social, um, you know, topic. And then there's also interweaves with, you know, politics, like what are your values? What kind of production values to believe in? Do you believe in, do you believe in plastic? Do you believe in organic pesticides, um, minimum wage? So there's all these incredible ways that you can, for someone like me, I'm really apolitical. I really don't enjoy politics, but I think you can basically make decisions and, and have a say um, via food and, you know, what better way to do it than via something that like everybody loves. It doesn't matter what the food is. It's definitely a point of like happiness, nostalgia, connection for pretty much every person in every culture around the world. Did you come to have this, this sort of view of food and its place within, you know, within um, our culture, uh, did you come to this place because you liked food and you, and you enjoyed eating it and that kind of thing? And then you sort of looked deeper and that all came about, or have you always sort of viewed it from this perspective? I definitely loved food from a young age and it doesn't come, there's no romantic story of like my mom taught me how to cook and my grandma did. Um, I think I alluded, you know, like to earlier, my mom was really busy. She worked full time. So it was my dad. We ate we ate well and we ate together as a family, but we certainly had jars of chicken tonight. Like I was making tuna pasta for the fam when I was young. I was making, cutting up sandwiches for my younger brother, sister and I. My grandfather built me a little stool so I could stand at the kitchen bench and do that. So I'm just someone who likes to take control and get shit done. I think that was just a way for me to be independent as a kid. Also growing up in Haberfield, which is, you know, Sydney's little Italy, uh, back in the day before houses were, you know, like 3 million bucks a pop, like we, we were pretty much the only whiteies, you know, on the street. So really had the privilege of being immersed in a really rich and deep rooted food culture by our neighbors and school friends. And just being able to be part of the, you know, it sounds quite normal now because a lot of people have a wood fired pizza oven, but let's rewind to the late eighties. Um, you know, the privilege of being able to go over to Mima and Angelo, our neighbors and, Mima had the pizza dough warming under the pillow in the couch that you'd accidentally sit on. And then Angelo would cook it in the fire outside. He'd be using salami that he'd cured. So even though we're in a really urban, urban setting, we were kind of getting a glimpse into this like very far away kind of culture and you know, something that you would maybe associate with only being people who live on the land, but, you know, having that inner city. So that definitely fueled it and built it. Um, and then, yeah, as an, as an adult and kind of growing up, food was really a way for us to connect as a family. Um, like I said, we, we always ate together on the weekends. Um, again, not, not the best food. Dad managed to like burn every steak he ever cooked on the barbecue, even though he went the through. The only way to do it. 
but through the rigor of asking us all whether we'd like it rare, medium rare or well, it was always done charred regardless. Um, so it was definitely a way for us, a busy family, to kind of come together. And for me, um, food is definitely like my love language and my way of seeing the world and connecting with people. I really like cooking for other people. I'm really nosy. I want to know what you eat. Like my first question is always like, oh, what do you have for breakfast? Or, you know, what's, what's always in your pantry? Um, so, yeah, it's just, I guess it's my lens of, of seeing the world. That's cool. It's funny you mentioned um, the Haberfield experience. I grew up in Dremoyne. Yeah. And we were there. Yeah. Yeah. Next door, I suppose. And we were there until, I don't know, until maybe I was nine, eight or nine. And then we moved to Gladesville, which, you know, wasn't that different. We had Greek neighbors at Jemoyne and they would, they would give us, you know, like just things that they baked, mostly cakes all the time. Um, And then I remember when I, and, and then I remember when we moved to Gladesville, I lived down the road from a Greek Orthodox church and I worked up at a fish shop. And so I had this like really tight connection with the Greek community there that took me, I had to, I had to do like a year or two years where they didn't trust me as the guy yeah. at the fish shop. And then, and then <laughs> finally it was like, I was like an honorary Greek um, and they would buy fish from me. But I, I, anyway, I left all that and I moved as in my twenties, I moved to the Eastern suburbs. And the first, one of the first things I noticed was like, oh, fuck, there's no Greeks here. And it was almost like there was, and obviously like the Eastern suburbs, like Bondi has its own things going on, right? There's an amazing Jewish community there. And, you know, mm. shops, are, you know, that, that are run by, by people of, you know, um, by Jewish people and stuff. But I was like, fuck, I really felt like something was missing. And all those things that when I was a kid, like whatever, the neighbor giving us some cake or some biscuits that at the time didn't mean anything. You look back and you're like, oh, wow, that was actually really special that I could have those experiences with those people. And, and gave you an incredible insight. Like I remember mum would send me up to the Haberfield IGA, which now I believe pe- they do like food safaris up the high street, which just cracks me up thinking that as a feral teenager, you know, I was barefoot up there with a shopping list and having to order in Italian. And she'd write down, you know, the gram amount and the ingredient in Italian. I would, and I would do that. And, you know, we learned Italian at school because it was, there was such a strong Italian community. And yeah, going back to what you said, I just assumed that was normal, but obviously everyone's normal is completely unique to themselves. And yeah, living in other parts of the world um, where people couldn't even, you know, in England, when I lived in England, people couldn't tell the difference between this is an Italian culture, but say Japanese food or Korean food, which again, being in Oz with these amazing um, diaspora and cultures from, from around the world, um, even if we perhaps lack some of our own food culture, we've got really incredible insights, um, sneak peeks into other people's just because of the way, you know, our migration and immigration in this country. Could you talk on your work with uh, Delicious? Um, and obviously, like I've, I've seen the magazine a bunch of times, always looks like amazing photos, amazing articles, yeah. not something that I read. But when I, you know, when I, when I look, I'm like, oh, shit, this is very, you know, it would be very easy reading on, you know, um, stuff that looks that nice and from what i'm getting it's it's not it's not purely just a recipe book uh can you talk about your time working with them and what you do sure when i started at delicious i'd say it probably wore, more was a collection of recipes basically delicious started back um in connection with the abc back when abc had all the kind of overseas cooking shows like the nigella lawson and the rick steins and it was a way to kind of put those you know take those recipes and put them into print And then during the time I was there, we really looked at, okay, how do we tell the whole story of food from the producers um, through to the artisans, then, you know, 
the chain doesn't start with the chefs and restaurants. They're just part of, you know, many links in the chain. Um, and then, of course, the consumers. And that's when we, you know, I remember I started a column called Healthy Balance. And at the time, I had my publisher saying to me, we're a food magazine, not a health magazine. Why the hell are you starting a, a health column in here? And for me, I was like, well, they're, they're so you know, inextricably linked. I, it's a crazy question to ask. It's more crazy. Why don't we already have this column in the magazine? Um, so, of course, I got to live like a very, I guess, enviable life. Like I um, met Anthony Bourdain in New York City. Wow. Was, was 45 minutes late for him as well. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, you know, ate at Noma when Rene Redzepi came here, ate at Noma in, in Copenhagen. I've, you know, met Ottolenghi, spoken to Nigella, Chris Manfield. Like I've met such interesting people and, and guess people who you would say were like leaders in this, in this area. Um, and then, of course, the capacity to travel and, you know, all our travel stories had the lens of food. Um, but basically, after six years at Delicious, I decided that I needed to kind of take a year off and explore some of the other sides of food that we had in the magazine that I wanted to deep dive into more, which are really kind of like the cultural um, elements and aspects of food. What are the human stories behind it? And how, how is food like a, a powerful vector for change um, in communities? Wow. That's um, the names you rattled off there. Like I, I I'm familiar with them and I think back, I'm like, how do I know these people? And I, I guess my brush with the foodie culture has come from, from different avenues, like multiple different places. But uh, like even thinking about like what you watch on Netflix, like chef's table and stuff like that. And um, I've started somehow like Anthony Bourdain, a parts unknown show has popped up on my YouTube feed. So I'm, yeah. I find myself watching that quite often. Uh, that leads me to ask, what is it about, like the, like the foodie culture and this, you know, the television shows and the YouTube series and all that, that we all love so much. Well, I, I think, and I, I mean, you're, I know you're someone who absolutely loves food as well. We've talked about, you know, some of your recipes that you've cooked and yes, your, your lemongrass, which I've been meaning to tell you I planted and it's died. So <laughs> <laughs> maybe good with cooking, perhaps not so good with gardening. I'm sure, I think I chopped off too much of the roots. I told you that when I gave it to you. Yeah. I think it was my fault. <laughs> I tried. I gave my best shot. But, you know, we're all primarily wired to, to like food. It's, you know, you take away all the sensory pleasure. Like food is a survival instinct. A baby will crawl its way to food. We're programmed to, to find the most calorific, uh, you know, food out in our environment, which unfortunately there's much more of an abundance that, that, of that these days. And yet we're still wired to, to search for it and, and eat it. Um, so I think it's definitely in us. But then as, as humans, we are basically, we have all those emotional ties around food. You know, there's, there's sadness, there's nostalgia, there's happiness. Food is an important part of any cultural celebration, be it a wake, a wedding, a birthday party, a, it's Friday, come over for dinner, um, a consolation gift. I think we're seeing a lot of that during COVID. People are you know, gifting all sorts of beautiful food, be it meals or treats. So it really is a, a language and it, and it sounds cheesy, but I really do think food is a universal language. Like for you getting in the Greek community, I'm sure you weren't rattling off full Greek sentences, but through food, you develop connection with, with that community. Um, and it was, it's the same for me, and I'm sure the same for anyone else who's either lived somewhere foreign or just has experience with people fleeting moments. So it's food's power to, to connect. Um, so it also has, yeah, a very kind of human and emotional element as well as being really primal. 
do you think that the like uh, on that on that piece again about the kind of um the foodie culture and i i um i can talk from a bit of experience i used to I used to date a girl that was very, that worked within uh, the food scene, did a lot of like meat, you know, content and stuff like that. Yeah. So we'd have, you know, we'd, we'd go to amazing dinners and, and, you know, people's houses and whatever. And there'd always be incredible stuff going, oh, this is so-and-so that's done this and this is what they make and they brought this and, you know, whatever. And I loved it. Um, but one thing I noticed in that, in that circuit was that food and alcohol and the enjoyment of it was was in such abundance that it became kind of, and this is a general statement, but I would say it was largely, became a pretty unhealthy lifestyle for a lot of the folks who were really there at the forefront of it, like restaurateurs and, and mm. you know, up and coming chefs who are just living this thing full time. Um, you know, you mentioned that how you saw food uh, when you came up with that column for Delicious was that like food culture and health are kind of inextricably linked. However, I, and I agree, but then I don't think that everyone would see it that way. And I guess, you know, um, could you talk on that idea of is food culture necessarily healthy or can it, you know, can it sort of be taken too far? I mean, I can, I can speak from being inside it and, you know, my experience and certainly my experience of um, chefs who will remain unnamed and, you know, friends in the industry, but certainly um, there's a massive element of overindulgence and, you know, it's food, alcohol, and of course, drugs are all kind of part of that um, amazing, like, you know, if you've seen the movie Babette's Feast, it's about these three guys who they're all about to die in France and they go and hire a house and basically just eat this ridiculous over-the-top rich food until they all kind of die. So it's a real um, French kind of satirical black comedy. And there's definitely that element to food. Um, and I've certainly got friends who only eat Wagyu and only cook with, you know, 250 grams of butter per meal. And <laughs> in, in the food world, you know, I, in the, it's funny, out of context, like I'd say in my normal life, not with people who are necessary in the food world, I'm probably seen as the one who has the most indulgent eating habits, but among my, you know, chef friends, I'm the clean one because I, whatever, refrain occasionally, or, you know, I, I'm not sloshing back natural wine every night or, you know, having, you know, super rich pasta, use sea urchin butter pasta every night, but I can do both. But there was certainly that hedonistic element to food, which was part of my kind of desire to, to kind of move on from delicious and, and, and kind of explore a new frontier of food because that lifestyle is amazing. I mean, I had days where I was having like lunch at key for work and then I was going to Ben along for dinner and I was, you know, I'd get home and be like, I have literally been eating for 12, eating and drinking for 12 hours under the name of food. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and getting paid for it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and so it is, obviously it's food. If you look at food philosophically, it's an art that you have to, con you have to consume, you know, a, um, visual arts you can stand back and take in a painting with your eyes music you hear it with your ears food you actually have to you know it's quite a dangerous art form because you have to ingest it it has to become one with your body it, it becomes your cells so that it is something kind of primal um, there is something still very primal in the act but it does involve consumption and I think all that conspicuous consumption that you were kind of talking about in the food world um, is a trend that obviously still exists, but it's something that's really changed as issues around sustainability, mental health, certainly after like Bourdain's suicide or death, sorry. Um, and then, and also that with a lot of chefs, you know, in Sydney, we've 
especially seen that here as well, as well as around Australia. So people are looking at kind of healthier relationships with food, um, you know, the rise of like more plant-based eating and healthier ways of, of eating, even at that kind of higher, higher level. So it's almost like a trickle up effect. That's a really good point. Yeah, I, I, I know exactly what you mean. And you see it in so many places now where uh, like you'll see a, a, a trendy cafe, restaurant kind of thing, but they will, you, you look at the menu and it will be, um, it will largely be pretty healthy stuff. It will be very seasonal. It will be utilizing, you know, whatever, more plants or whole animal, or it might even be a, a meat-free place. Mm. Um, but yeah, already those little things that we kind of now take for granted in that scene, I guess we've got to remember they're also, they're, they're very new to that scene, aren't they? Absolutely. Even look at all the non-alcoholic, you know, drinks that are out there now and the non-alcoholic options like that. That's something that would be, would have been like unfathomable in the kind of realm of like higher dining, you know, 10 years ago. And now it's completely normal to go out and maybe have one glass of wine or have none, but to have some like really other great kind of grown up options. So for you being someone who is into training and also into food, how, can you give us, can you talk on what your, like what your sort of uh, your diet for, for lack of a better word, what you eat generally looks like? Do you kind of, do you sometimes, obviously you're going to do it for the love of food and there's going to be indulgence there, but then are there times when you are eating in a more kind of technical way that is, to uh, support your training and the results? For sure. I've like, I've trod this line and I still, you know, don't have the kind of silver bullet magic answer, but I have, you know, been on every kind of eating regimen under the sun from like the bulletproof coffees, paleo, plant-based, Tim Ferriss, slow carb, um, fasting, 16852, um, purely because I'm I think, you know, with anything, like if you're curious, if you're interested in a topic, you're curious about it. So you want to experiment, you know, like with training, how different uh, techniques work on your body. What I found has, I feel that I've kind of come to this, this nice kind of softer place in the middle of this, of the swings. And it's more kind of seeing food um, as it is a source of, it is a source of fuel for me. I definitely see it as that. On Saturday, when I go and have an acai bowl, which JT gives me shit for, or when I go and have an almond croissant from Burke Street Bakery, which I believe is Sydney's best, um, you know, I, I know that that's a blowout and I don't feel guilty, but I also don't feel amazing after eating it. So I've kind of worked out a way for eating for me that really is um, pretty plant-based, actually. I, I have been vegetarian in the past. I have also been highly... Um, carnivorous in the past and I found that this coming to this place of not cutting out things but just focusing on eating as many plants as I possibly can um, has really kind of been something that's helped me with like sleep not feeling bloated uh, kind of quicker digestion um, I also have some like family tendencies to towards cancer so for me looking at ways you know, possible ways that I could reduce that through the way I ate was also like a way of like looking at food functionally. Um, so for me, like a normal day is going to, I'm looking at trying to have at least five, five different types of plants in every single meal. And that's kind of how I look at it more than like, oh, I'm going to have carbs now and I'm going to have meat now. So I'm like, just get the plants in. And they could be anything from like, you know, hemp seeds sprinkled over porridge with berries and papaya and mashed up banana through it to an epic salad at lunch with 
quinoa and salmon and avocado and feta. But for me, it's like just get the plants in and then add the flavor with all those delicious things like cheese, meat, fish, um, you know, pickles, ferments, um, and kind of being plant centric. It's taken a lot of the thinking out of it for me. I buy the same groceries every week. Um, I know I've got these kind of pieces of this puzzle that I can slightly piece together differently each week. Um, I don't know, how, how have you kind of found that a simple way that's worked for you? I guess, what do I do? It depends. I, I swing between, I, 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 we talked, I've spoken about this, Paul T and myself all kind of do it where I'll go through periods where I'm eating in a very deliberate way for a particular goal. So it might be uh, like the last time I did that, I had to drop a bit of weight for a jiu-jitsu competition earlier this year. So I spent about six or eight weeks um, in a calorie deficit, fasting for, you know, for most of like I fasted Monday to Friday until whatever, 2 p.m. kind of thing. So when I was doing that, everything that I was eating became very routine. It was like high protein yogurt and heaps of eggs and meat and, and you know, lots of vegetables and, and that kind of thing. But then now that I'm not doing that, it's kind of like all bets are off for a little while and I just do what I want. And so what tends to happen uh, naturally for me is that I'll go through a period of restriction like that, where I'm trying to get to a certain goal. And then I'll go through a period of freedom. And in the period of freedom, like things will, things will seem to have a nice kind of balance. And then a certain amount of time will pass and I'll realize, oh man, I'm eating fucking chocolate every day of the week. And I'm, you know, I'm drinking like a beer or a glass of wine with every dinner. And I'm like, the, whatever the, the croissant that I used to have, you know, once a week, now I'm having like something from the bakery three times. Like it just yeah. creeps, all that shit creeps back in. And so usually that gives me then the, that's like the, the catalyst for me to go, all right, time to tighten up again. And then I go through that period of restriction. And when I say restriction, it's like, it doesn't feel like a terribly restricted thing. It's just more being more deliberate about what I eat. Certainly. I think, um, I think a lot of people like fear discipline or rules you think you're going to go without, but there's, you know, like madman Jocko Willingson, you know, says discipline is freedom. And for me, the, the less amount of decisions I have to make on a daily basis, the easier my life is like the richer my day. is. So I think having, having rules around food is, is actually a really great solution. It's more like what's driving those rules. Is it fear? Is it guilt? Is it a desire to nourish? Is it a positive or negative mindset? Um, and yeah, that's a really kind of, a, a, for me, a, the way I like to look at it. Yeah, that's a, that's a really excellent point. I think, um, yeah, people do get scared of setting, uh, of, of setting guidelines or parameters for themselves, particularly when it comes to food, because food, as you said, it's, it's, it's like, it has so much going on, like so much value for us, like the, the, the mouth pleasure, but the nostalgia and the, you know, the escapism and all those things. Yeah. Um, I, I tend to like, I find myself having the conversation with people a lot um, where, you know, it usually stems from we're talking about training and we're talking about how they can get better results from what they're eating. And so invariably the conversation goes to what they're currently eating. And for certain friends of mine who really just indulge all the time, the thing that I try to, to sort of um, get them to understand is like, like we've all done that at periods. And the thing is when you're indulging all the time, like let's say you're getting Uber Eats, like delivered food delivered to your house half of the week, like four or five nights a week, you're getting stuff delivered. And then you go to the cafe a few times a week and you know, more than 50% of your meals are bought out. You don't actually appreciate those meals mm. because you're just having them all the fucking time. 
totally. Like when I um, when I do these big travel writing trips, you're going somewhere, you know, for it could be as short time as like four days if it's like a local destination, or if I'm going overseas, it could be two weeks, and you are literally eating nonstop because you're meeting all these producers, these chefs, these artisans, and getting their stories. And of course, everyone wants you to try try a bit. And like the thing I love is when I come back from these trips, all these great photos and memories of stories is like, I just want to feel hungry again. Like it takes me a few weeks to, I'm just like, I want to eat nothing but broccoli, steamed broccoli. And I just want to feel hungry. That's going to be the biggest privilege for me right now. And, you know, too much of a, of a good thing really is a thing when it comes to food. And, you know, there is a reason, a reason like food, we should be suspicious of cheap food, like food, is a high value you know product and if you're eating like amazing steak or an amazing cheese it's expensive because of what's gone into it and and therefore it's not designed to be eaten every day that's a really good point yeah yeah it's um it's funny i think uh i, I don't know i think some of us are afraid like to just back to that thing of discipline i think it's it's also people feel like it's going to be a, a commitment forever it's like, hey, you can't, you can't eat like that anymore. You've, you've got to change these habits. And it's like, fuck, but th that thing means so much to me. I can't do that. Be like, you don't have to do it forever. You just got to do it for a little while. And then every time you, I find every time you take a measure like that, you start to like, let's say you cut out caffeine and you go for three months without caffeine. Yeah, it's probably going to suck a little bit, but you're going to learn a bunch of stuff that is going to help to, you to recalibrate your own perspectives around caffeine consumption and whatever. And energy levels and that kind of thing that then makes you a more educated individual moving forward. Mm. So it's like when you do the same things with, with, you know, not just caffeine, but with foods, you start to gain a more, I feel like you gain a more well-rounded understanding of foods, their effect on you, uh, you know, how you operate without them, with them and all that kind of stuff. I've found it's been really interesting um, and not to scrutinize in a, in a way that is obsessive, but you know, when I'm thinking about food, when I want to like, have a bit of chocolate, like in the afternoon, it's like, do I really want, like, what is the feeling under the feeling? Like, do I really want chocolate? Like, maybe I just want a hug. Maybe I just need to go get some sunshine. Maybe I need to have a nap, you know? And, you know, I think our default mode is, is hunger um, because that is really a way that we kind of can have instant gratification. Um, certainly in our like modern societies where there's an abundance, you know, we have the privilege of having an abundance of food around us. So kind of realizing that, yeah, of course, food is a big part of the puzzle, but sometimes when we're feeling something, you know, after a breakup, you want to eat loads and you're like, well, maybe I just need to go speak to someone rather than like eat half a block of lint and then be lying in bed with belly cramps, you know? So it's, yeah, kind of think, I think to kind of be conscious around why we're eating something. Um, and then if you do decide that you're going to eat it, like to enjoy it. And if you're going to make the call to, to eat it, like whatever it is, whether it's something, you know, in um, inverted commas, like healthy or unhealthy, like you've made the commitment to eat it. So now you've got to, you've made the commitment to enjoy it and, and kind of really savor it. Yeah. It's a great point. Yeah. Not feeling like not, not hiding in the cupboard while you're having that treat. It's probably not yeah, exactly. the best way to have the treat. <laughs> yeah. Like eat, eat the peanut butter from the jar on the balcony where everyone can see you don't look in the shadow <laughs> of the pantry. <laughs> I remember when I started as a, um, as a, as a PT, uh, a coach said to us, um, never be seen by your clients eating something that's like unhealthy. Yeah. And, yeah. I, and I was like, yeah, that's really good advice. That makes sense. 
but then I, I, I thought about it again. I reconsidered it some years later and I thought that's fucking bullshit, man. Like, you know, there's such a, it's such a myth that like say people in health, fitness, whatever, don't indulge in things. And it, it just sets such an unrealistic expectation for folks who are maybe, you know, whatever, trying to improve their health, but also like to have a little treat here and there. Um, yeah, it's just funny. This an illusion that's that, that we try to uphold sometimes in fitness. I wonder if that's, um, it's kind of, this could be, could be a bit of a stretch, but um, Michael Moore kind of brings this topic up. He made what up in sicko years and years ago. And it really resonated with me as someone who's interested in the cultural side of food. And um, of course, sicko is about how un, unwell Americans are. Um, and he basically says that made the point that a country without a food culture is going to have more food related illness because they don't have this, these kind of food rituals and traditions that have these underlying health and environmental kind of lessons and framework for people to kind of live by. So for instance, like when I was in Italy, like the, the daggy like 90s gym that I went to in this small town in the countryside, the PTs were all outside smoking in the lunch break, having an espresso, <laughs> eating pizza, like your coach would have died. That's the best. <laughs> because the Italian way of life is that you, you know, you follow certain food rules, you you always start with with pasta. You only drink, you know, at this time of day. You stop for lunch and have a break. You don't eat this for breakfast. You don't have milk, you know, in the afternoon. There's all these rules. So people don't have to think about it. So the rules are there. And then you can just crack on with whatever you're doing. Whereas we come from like a culture that, you know, we don't have, you know, what is Aussie food? This I get asked this question all the time and I never give anyone the answer they want to hear because I reference all the other food cultures that kind of make it up rather than distilling it down into a single dish or sentence. And, you know, so we, we have so much flexibility that we're, we're kind of burdened by what, like you're saying, what choice is the best one for, for what I'm working on currently. That's a really interesting point. And to, to, yeah, the, the, the line from Michael Moore there, I think that makes a lot of sense. This idea that cultures tend to have sort of inbuilt rules or parameters around how they eat, which are whatever, it's just part of the culture. But the underlying thing is that they actually have a really good, really sort of practical health benefits as well. Definitely. Could you, could you talk on that? Like from your time traveling abroad and, and obviously I, and I understand you spent a lot of time in Italy. Could you talk on some of those lessons um, about healthy eating that aren't related necessarily to how many calories you're getting and how many grams of protein per serve? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I guess the kind of way to, we could look at this is like, you know, the traditional like blue zones around the world, parts of the world that are known for having the highest um, or longest life expectancies. And the interesting thing is they're not concentrated geographically. Like they really are spread around the world from, you know, as far as like Asia across to Europe. Um, and kind of in looking at these, these zones, so there's Okinawa in Japan, there's Sardinia in Italy, there's Crete, also in the Mediterranean. What is the kind of common thread? Because they're all eating different foods. They're all eating hyper-local, seasonal, whatever foods, but they're all very different diets. But what is a common thread is the way people eat and the way people connect over food. So um, food is seen as something communal. It's seen as a ritual. Um, it is seen as an active connection with people. Um, there's none of this kind of guilt or um, overeating or hiding because the food is the vector to connect with other people. It's also seen as a way to, I guess, like steward, take stewardship of the land. Um, so if you look at countries' dishes, like let's look at Mexico, for instance, where you've got like, um, they call it the three sisters, like pumpkin, beans and corn are like the staple of 
a zillion dishes and yeah, that's really good for you um, to eat, eat those foods, but it's actually really good for the earth. Um, they kind of grow symbiotically. The corn stalks are planted, the beans um, use the corn as a, what do you call that in gardening where something uh, like trellis a, yeah trellis yeah and then the pumpkin spreads across the ground and kind of protects the soil and keeps pests away and then the beans also put nitrogen back into the soil so you've got these like ways of eating in these really in these areas that have really strong food cultures that yeah like the, the human benefit health benefits are there but it's also um about looking after the land and looking after kind of the mental health of communities as well wow that's cool I've, I've heard someone was telling me about someone at the gym actually was telling me they grow their, um, their beans and their, uh, corn like that in the backyard. Oh, Mexican? Uh, no, it was, um, I don't, I don't know if you know him. His name's Mark. He's a, he's an Aussie guy, but he said he read about it. He said, uh, he said, oh, the, the, um, indigenous, you know, uh, Indian Amer American Indians used to do this. So he goes, I yeah. do it in my backyard. It's awesome. Got the beans growing up the corn stalks. Awesome. <laughs> you can do that in the garden at JV's when we can all get back there. Mate, that garden is flourishing at the moment. I mean, oh, I might swing by and pick something. <laughs> yeah, you should. It kind of need, I, I've been meaning to, but no, it needs to be picked. <laughs> um, talk to me more about the, you touched on some of those things like in Italy, those sort of funny rules that they have. I understand. I, I remember I used to, when I worked at the fish shop, there was the, the, um, the Italian guys that would be hanging out from the fruit shop all the time and they would never have milk in their coffee in the afternoon and they would comment on me having milk in the coffee. We would all be having cigarettes together at any time of the day. Yeah. Um, Talk to me about the, the significance of those kind of seemingly funny little rules they have. Yeah, I mean, so I guess the food culture is, um, there's a guy called Magnus Nielsen who's got a restaurant called Favakin up somewhere in like Norway or Sweden. You basically have to like hike there and you stay overnight and it's, you know, super hyper local. You're eating deer that he shot and elk and, and berries he's picked from the fjords. And he basically speaks about the kind of double-edged sword that, that traditional food culture is. And he says that, you know, it's great in one way, but it can also stop innovation. So, like, I think it's important, like, if food culture is great, but it's also, like, it does have its kind of darker side. So, like, in Italy, what I noticed is um, you could give me, like, a, a day and time and I could tell you probably what everyone in the village was doing, like, what they were eating. Like, the tradition was so cyclical, um, to the point where, you know, it was really hard to get, say, coriander in this town. It, it came into this one Indian grocer that um, it came in every Wednesday and you'd go and queue up to buy a bunch of coriander. So there is the, the dual side. Um, but certainly having the rules around food, I think they're really important for um, the kind of mix of, I guess, types of ingredients in the diet. You know, um, Italian food traditionally actually isn't super meat heavy. If you look at you think of Italian meats, what are you, what are you seeing? Like salamis, prosciutto, the, it's all about you've got the animal and then you preserve it so that that can kind of last you throughout the year and you use that to supplement dishes that are kind of based in like grains, um, be it like rice if you're um, in the south or north, God, I can't remember now, rice is in the north and wheat is more in the south and then veggies. So Italians, are, you know, what is cheese? It's a way to preserve milk. So kind of creating these beautiful foods, but they are to kind of last you to extend those, those kind of harder to grow and more intensive animal products throughout the year. And then your kind of your everydays are more like the pasta. You know, you have, whenever you go to an Italian restaurant, pasta is the primi course, like you eat that first. Then if you've got room, you, you crack on to like the, the, the steak or, you know, whatever the next course is. 
Um, I was definitely breaking rules when I was in Italy as well, like mixing foods that shouldn't have been mixed, <laughs> eating gelato way too early in the day. Um, it was kind of funny, funny to see that. Um, but certainly in terms of the cultural rules, I just think it means that people don't really have to make, uh, don't have to scrutinize and make a decision around everything that they're eating. Yeah, it makes sense. Have you, um, uh, you, it makes me think of a film, Big Night. Have you ever seen that movie? No. You must watch it. Okay. If, one, if there's one thing that you do, uh, you know, uh, as a result of this chat that we're having, watch Big Night. And for anyone who's, uh, who's listening, it's one of my top 10 films of all time. I think it was made in the 90s. Stanley Tucci. Do you know mm -hmm. Stanley Tucci? Yeah. yeah it stars him and, and his brother. Uh, I think he's played by Tony Shalhoub. But they play, um, they're, they're two Italian boys and they've both come over to America and I think it's in the sixties and they're trying to make it in America and they've set up a restaurant and Stanley Tucci is the front of house guy and Tony Shalhoub is the chef and Tony Shalhoub is uh, the older brother. He's come over a bit later and he's much less Americanized than Stanley Tucci. And the whole film is about basically their clash with the American culture. Um, but <laughs> it's, it's summed up in like a scene where no one comes to their restaurant. Everyone goes to the, the busy place across the road. That's like more of a club. It's run by some other half Italian guy, but they find, they get a couple of customers in and it's this American couple and they order a bunch of dishes and the chef's already appalled by them because they've ordered like multiple different things at the same time. And he's made them this risotto and they're commenting on how small this bowl of rice is. And um, they ask for a side of spaghetti and meatballs and he's like, we don't do spaghetti and meatballs. And they're like, what do you mean you don't do spaghetti and meatballs? And the, and the brother's like, just make them the fucking spaghetti and meatballs. But, but you, it's this, you see it. And, I, and I, you, know, you see it play out where it's like someone is so, um, someone adheres so much to their culture and to the beliefs around the food. And then there's some Westerner that's like, no, no I just fucking want it whenever I want it. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a funny thing to see play out. And I, 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 I think, um, kind of takes me to another point that you made uh, or that you made me think of, which is the, the, the traditional food cultures of these places have this way of maintaining some kind of health in a sense. Mm. But as soon as you add affluence or uh, as soon as you add affluence as a layer to that, um, people are no longer restricted as to how often they can eat the salami or how many bowls of pasta they can have, or, you know, I can have meat with every meal. So all of a sudden you start to get this overindulgence and then those natural kind of parameters that were keeping you healthy are no longer there. Absolutely. Like traditional food cultures are based on, you know, what they in Italy, um, excuse my horrendous pronunciation, cucina povera, um, you know, which is like peasant cooking. And we had to be thrifty back in the day, our ancestors or even, you know, you know, just a couple of generations back didn't have the abundance of food that we have at our fingertips in you know modern cities so the idea was how the hell do i stretch this chicken carcass and handful of broad beans to be three delicious meals that's going to nourish my family and people coming in from work and and people studying and growing so there was really a like i'd say thriftiness was like the key ingredient and and um, i've actually just been writing an article on food waste and i'm just thinking like thriftiness is is not even something we're necessarily thinking of now because if my bag of lettuce goes soggy, I can just go back to Coles and buy another one for $3. And, you know, that's cheaper than a coffee. And that's something that's going to make me a few lunches or do a salad for three or four people. So this concept around thriftiness, um, around food, we seem to have lost. And, 
And I think it does come to this affluent kind of piece that you've said that we almost don't want to have to be thrifty because it implies perhaps it implies a state of desperation or a state of lack or without, but actually being thrifty is, is, isn't that at all. You know, you can eat really well being thrifty. And in fact, by not being thrifty, we're kind of creating, we're compounding the problems with, you know, food waste and food decomposing and landfill and emitting methane and, and contributing to a whole bunch of kind of, you know, environmental issues. So being thrifty would actually be like the higher road to kind of take. Do you think uh, would now be a good time? I'd like to go into that a little bit more and sort of get just some of your, because the way I'm looking at this is for a lot of folks, they think about food and, and there's obviously the side of it that we spoke about, which is, um, you know, how do I lose weight? How do I build muscle? How do I support my training? But then I do think that there's, uh, there's people who are also like, I would like to have a better relationship with food. I, I, I do like watching cooking shows and I'd like to cook some cool shit. But, um, but for whatever reason, people don't feel like they're qualified to do so. Um, whether it's a creative thing or it's a lack of knowledge of, um, you know, how to use pots and pans and whatever, or it's even just like, I don't know how to assemble different ingredients. Um, I find that there's hurdles for folks when it comes to like throwing something together in a way that kind of touches on this thriftiness that you're talking about and resourcefulness. And, and what I would argue is like, one of the greatest habits you can have for your health is being able to just have a basic understanding of how to throw something together. Um, because then you're not reliant on, well, fuck it. It's late. I'm going to call Uber Eats and you, you know, you, you, you make better decisions. Mm. Can you talk on some of your sort of, uh, I guess, habits around that and like being resourceful and being thrifty with your cooking? Yeah, definitely. And I think what could be quite an interesting thought exercise is maybe for me to ask you, like, say it's a Wednesday night, you're coming home from work late at the gym. Um, what are your kind of any hurdles, if any, when it comes to like thinking about getting dinner on the table? Like, what are your main concerns? Uh, what are the kind of roadblocks for you? Great question. The main, the main thing with me, like in that situation where I'm coming home late, is if I haven't prepared something in advance, I'm kind of fucked. Um, and that means I have to have either prepared something on the weekend, which I often do on a Sunday, or, or I've had to kind of make extra of whatever I was making when I wasn't at work late. So hopefully on Monday or Tuesday night, one of those nights I was at home and I could put something together, right? So preparation is like the first thing. Yeah. The second consideration for me is uh, I'm always thinking, how is the meal balanced? And I'm, I'm, you know, uh, unashamedly like I eat quite a, a protein rich diet. So it's like, okay, where's the, like, what is the meat source? What is the form of carbohydrate and where are the vegetables coming from? Mm -hmm. um, and even in a situation like that, if it boils down to it, the vegetables will almost be discarded. And it's like, okay, the, the basic building blocks, give me the protein and give me the carbs, right? Like, <laughs> right, so like this, and, and maybe there's some fermented vegetable or whatever on the side, but essentially it's, it's meat and carbs. But so that's really what I'm thinking. And I can, I can say, I mean, I'm lucky that uh, my partner's a great cook. And if I haven't prepared, then hopefully she will have prepared something. Yeah. And so, you know, we'll have that conversation earlier in the day. They would be sort of my main thoughts. Does that, does that answer your question? Yeah, no, I, I definitely, and I think you could probably write the book on that. I think eating, 
eating well into, and when I say well, I, I don't mean eating a um, super extravagant diet, but eating something food is that, that is going to help in terms of performance, whether that is training or feeling good or sleeping or feeling positive or just being a chilled human being. Um, it does come down to planning and it does kind of grate me a little when people say I don't have time to cook. And I have, I've said it before. I've got family members who I love who've said it. Um, so I'm not pointing the finger at anyone, but it's like saying I want to be healthy, but I don't have time to exercise. Like it is a fundamental, um, I guess, duty as a human, you, you know, before the advent of um, vending machines, if you didn't know how to cook, then, then you, you wouldn't have survived. So we're lucky that we, we live in a world where we have the choice not to cook, but I think having a basic understanding of how to put a meal together, even if you do it once a week for yourself, but having that knowledge is, is a pretty like integral kind of part of, uh, you know, life kit of as a human, this is an essential skill. Um, so it does require time. And I'm also guilty of having way too much fun on the weekends and not getting ahead with meal prep. Um, lockdown has totally thrown my schedule off. I've gone absolutely feral. Um, but normally <laughs> I would absolutely meal prep um, the way you did. And it would always be something that, um, you know, complicated food, um, sorry, delicious food doesn't have to be complicated, but for me, something that's slow cooked is, is really high in flavor and delicious. And there's no way I'm making a dal or slow cooking meat or making a curry on a Tuesday night when I get home from, you know, body weight B or A, the members don't know which one is on, you know, at, at seven o'clock at night. So for me, I always do like the big kind of pot dish on traditionally a weekend is when most of us have our time off. So I'll do that. Um, enjoy, you know, a serving off it, you know, with whoever, whoever's at home with me and then keep the rest in the fridge and then freeze some and basically just bastardize. Let's take lentils. Let's take a dal, for instance, because it's super cheap, super easy to make and you can kind of play around with it. So I'll eat it as a curry with naan and like make it a treat on the weekend, do some kind of garlicky greens and have a bit like your curry fest that you put up lots of different colors on the plate. And then when it comes to Monday, I'll probably um, have it with like, I'll make roast a bit of salmon. Then I'll have that same dial with the salmon. And then the next day I'm going to have, there's going to be less fit left. So I'll make up, steam some veggies, do a fried egg and still have the dal. So basically I'm not getting, um, I'm still getting the excitement of it being part of multiple dishes. And then I'm by day three, I've had enough of the dal. I never want to see, it. I don't want to see it for another week. So <laughs> how I feel so, about dal after my Indian week last week. I know. <laughs> It happens with the best of us. So certainly the meal prepping and having something in the fridge and it doesn't even have to be something, you know, as, as a, as much of a recipe is dull. Um, for me, like having a stash of roast veggies in the fridge is really good. Um, especially someone like you, like you're saying, you know, you really want to eat a lot of meat and the veggies can take time. Like you can come home, cook a steak in 10 minutes, roasting a bunch of pumpkin is going to take you 40 minutes. So meh, who's got time to do that? So having those kind of things like that cooked in the fridge, ready to go to kind of add to the quicker things throughout the week is also um, a definite hack of mine. And, you know, at the moment I've got all manner of random leftovers in the fridge from quinoa to we made salmon burritos last night. So I've got chipotle salmon. I've got the beans we made for that. And they will just keep getting reformed into kind of different meals with the addition of like fresh veggies on the side to go with. So certainly meal planning is the key. And that's a very cool point you make. It's not about like, like you don't make necessarily the dal and some rice and some veggies. And it's that same thing for five days in a row where you just, 
fucking hate life by the end of it. But it's <laughs> like you, you have that big pot of a thing, but then you find different ways to interpret that into a meal. Mm, exactly. And, you know, I think the, uh, I think another kind of, I guess, kind of tool to have is <clears throat> if like you be creative, but don't be too creative. Like if you're too creative, you're, you're worried about cooking a different recipe every night. Like, I'm sorry, no one's doing that. Like it, no chef is even doing that. So don't feel that to cook, you have to be embarking on this huge mission every night of the week. Um, you know, know a few basic kind of ways of cooking like roasting veggies is going to give you this beautiful charred caramelized kind of flavor master one or two different spice mixes and then that's your veggies done for the week cooking you know slow roasting meat versus searing a steak in a pan they're two ways to give you completely different results boom that's how you're going to cook your meat you can choose which one um, fresh veggies making a salad and putting loads of things in there that give you crunch and texture like sprouts and cabbage capsicum mix up the tomato lettuce cucumber thing bang, that's your salad done. You don't have to keep reinventing that. And then throughout the week, pick your like favorite hot sauce or your favorite condiment. And you can kind of add diversity with that. Um, so I think that's a good way to kind of make sure you're hitting your, your macros because I agree, it's important to tra track what you're eating, but also be giving yourself um, those kind of flavor cues that keep you satiated and make you feel like you've had a really abundant, delicious meal. It's very cool. I, I like the way you kind of, you, you um, boiled that down to like, you know, coming up with like a couple of different meal choices for the week. Um, what do you think about, um, I just lost my train of thought there. Oh, that was my, my piece. The, the thing you mentioned about like being able to fry an egg and add that to something or being able to have, um, you know, I think you mentioned some, some roasted salmon. There's obviously an understanding in your mind there of um, that a meal, like a, like a, like a well-balanced meal has some protein, some carbohydrates, some vegetables. Yeah. Um, can you talk on that a little bit? Like, do you tend to follow that kind of standard format for, for most of your meals or do you stray from it sometimes and just have a whole bunch of, I don't know, salad or a whole bunch of um, protein? No, I would definitely stick to that formula. For me, I freak out if I don't have veggies on the plate. Like I said, like the kind of, I focus on get veg on there and then add the protein. So I always have loads of cans of legumes um, in the in the pantry. I, I, I don't cook them from scratch, from hard. It takes way too long. I'm not that organized. So I use canned legumes, which is super easy. Um, always have some kind of salmon in the freezer, eggs, and then... I don't eat that much meat. Um, I actually had an amazing uh, lamb tagine cooked by uh, Tima on the weekend and it was really delicious, big, beautiful, oh. slow cooked lamb. Um, but like I said, for personal choices, I, I just eat, eat meat very sparingly. So I wouldn't say it's part of my uh, like weekly kind of repertoire, like on, on repeat. Um, but for sure, when I'm looking at the plate, I'm looking at probably like half of it has got to be, half's got to be veg, a, a, a quarter of it is some form of protein and then the other bit is either quinoa or i'm blowing out with like cheese or something fatty like avocado so i'm kind of going either like carby or fat on the other the other bin i like that that's very simple in terms of uh, in terms of being in the kitchen and if you're talking to someone who you know say you're having a, a follow-up conversation with someone who listened to this episode and they're like oh you know i'm not very handy in the kitchen whatever and like I like that episode and I'm kind of, I'm down to learn a little bit more. What do you, can you give us some other sort of good pieces of advice on a starting point to start to get a little bit more comfortable with, with, with using your kitchen and making good food? Yeah, definitely. I think 
when people say they're not into cooking, um, or maybe they're, they've got some hesitation around food, it's got nothing to do with cooking or food. It's like the underlying, is there a stress that you have to follow a really complicated recipe or is there um, misinformation that you need to spend an hour preparing dinner? Um, so to kind of dispel some of those myths to, you know, like you can have an amazing dinner on the table in half an hour. You can also have an amazing dinner on the table in four hours if you're going to do a Greek, you know, your mates doing the Greek slow cook shoulder of lamb full of lemon, oregano and olives. Like that's also going to be a beautiful meal. Um, so I think cooking to the time frame you have. So classic example, one of my girlfriends, her husband, you know, said, oh, I'm going to old cook us dinner tonight. Don't worry. I think he does this like twice a year. And, you know, he comes home from the supermarket, like she's already put all the kids to bed. Yada, she's exhausted. And the guy starts cooking like a roast duck at like 8.30 at night. And then she's just furious with him, like, really? <laughs> That's great. He's like, babe, don't worry, I got this. You got, yeah. <laughs> she's just fuming on the couch with a second glass of wine, you know, tipsy, just wanting to have dinner. So cook to the time frame you have. If it's a Sunday you know, like, you know, that's when you kind of do your meal prep. That's the time where, yeah, you can maybe start cooking a bit earlier when lockdown's over. Maybe you've gone to the farmer's market in the morning, you've picked your produce, had a coffee, had the croissant. You've just like the whole food experience is a lot more chilled. Um, so that's when you would kind of, you know, cook the braise or the dal or the, the roast. But then when it comes to like during the week, it's like, what can you pump out in, in half an hour? And that obviously requires having stuff prepped. So first of all, just having ingredients in the fridge, I think is really important. So have your kind of, what I do is I basically eat the same meals on repeat each week and I'm not bored with them. Like I'm so excited for Mexican night and then I'm so excited for the, the night a week that I, that I eat pasta and I'm super excited for, you know, like the big seafood extravaganza. Um, and what I mix up is, okay, so I know I'm going to have seafood, but am I going to go and get scallops or is it going to be some kind of whole, whole fish, like a cod, or am I going to be doing salmon? So that's where I kind of mix it up. So I'm not thinking about what meal am I going to create? It's like, what seasonal ingredients am I subbing in? So if you want a big slow cooked meaty thing, are you going to do chili con carne? Are you going to do bolognese? They've pretty much got the same base. You're just kind of mixing up the spices you, you throw in at the end, herbs and spices, and then what you serve it with. Is it rice or pasta? So thinking about those, like I guess highlighting those kind of five meals that you love and then kind of looking at just ways you can hack them just to give your brain, us humans, we actually don't like too much change. We really love routine. So how do you, how do you hack it slightly to make one dish, say Mexican instead of Italian? How do you, you know, use your pizza ingredients to make quesadillas or whatever the next week? Um, so really you only have to kind of nail like five, five things for the rest of your life. That's a, that's a really cool piece of advice. I think about, um, I have a friend who I, who I, a guy that I train and we have this conversation often, often, and he's from what I can gather, like he, he and his partner are not super like into cooking. So for them, it's always a bit of a challenge. You know, they've, they've got kids and they're both working and it's like, fuck yeah, you know, trying to eat healthier, but just it's hard to, you know, whatever, make it work. And so they use uh, HelloFresh. Yeah. And it, it sounds kind of, you know, he tells me about it. They send a box and it's got all these ingredients and it's all there in the quantities and whatever. And it sounds kind of cool, but it also sounds like it creates the expectation in his mind that he has to cook something fucking spectacular every night of the week. Absolutely. And it's like, and I think, you, you know, there's a, some, you know, there's kind of a thread to what you're saying where it's like, 
don't try and like do something super special. Like it, it can just be really simple and simple is totally good. I mean, fuck simple is like the whole Italian cuisine, right? Exactly. Yeah. It, it's, it, you don't have to change the world. And sometimes looking at recipes is a, is a really easy way to make you, it, to, to, to kind of make you think that you have to be doing like really complex dishes. Yeah. And I mean, and that's, I'd be turned off if I had to cook from a, if I hate cooking from recipes, actually, I, I don't like following the rules. Like I, I don't think it's a relaxed way of cooking. Um, but yeah, I have developed enough of a toolkit that I know how to fix a dish or keep building it until it like tastes, tastes as I want. But I think really, you know, cooking doesn't have to be complicated and, you know, I come from a household, like I said, my mom was a terrible cook. You know, she would get really stressed cooking a dish like bolognese and I go to her house and she'd have like six pans stacked up in the sink. And I'm like, man, how's this even possible? Like, what have you, what have you done? And the poor thing was just so stressed. So I can see how cooking is, can be really unenjoyable for someone um, with that mindset. So yeah, breaking it down to, okay, what cuisine do you like eating? Okay stick with stick with that cuisine and yes yeah, sub in you know make it so cooked beef with a slaw and beans one week then make the beef the salmon next week that's going to be enough variety the slaw is going to give you crunch the beans are going to give you the plant protein and all that fiber you don't need to change too much um and really if you look at what chefs do in restaurants um it, everything looks novel but things really aren't there's like you know the basic sources the basic techniques of cooking um you know roasting pan frying steaming um fresh raw based to give you that kind of variety like the building blocks actually are quite simple it's just the infinite ways you can kind of piece them together um to make the puzzle kind of look different every time i watched a do you remember watching dvds and how they used to have bonus features yeah i remember watching videos right yeah me, me too it just seems funny with dvds because they've come and gone in our time yeah. those videos were already there but <laughs> i mean uh, i'm expecting for you to um, but with the i remember watching a bonus feature of uh robert rodriguez who is the guy he directed um uh not desperado oh yeah desperado and he directed fucking some of the quentin tarantino stuff sin city and whatnot but he was saying and it was it was the most random special feature for a movie but it was one of the best pieces of advice for cooking. He said, I have five dishes that I've learned how to make really well. And yeah. they're kind of like my five favorite dishes. And I've, he actually, he's like, I put them onto a little menu card. And then when I have friends come around, I, I show them the menu card and I tell them, you can choose one of these. <laughs> and it's like, that's what we'll have. And he goes, I know where to get the ingredients. I've got most of the shit here in my freezer on my fridge. It's, I know how to do it. <laughs> And I thought that's actually a really practical piece of advice. Like it's kind of in line with what you're saying in a yeah. sense, like master a few key things and like keep reproducing those things so that you can find different ways of integrating them into a meal. Yeah. And then slowly add more things to that repertoire over time. Exactly. And once you're comfortable with something, then you know how it works and you know how to sub a flavor, how to, you know, add something in and out. But yeah, learn how to slow cook one bit of meat. Learn how to do one kind of saucy sauce that you can then use for beans or meat. Learn how to roast a tray of veggies. You can put Brussels sprouts in, you can put pumpkin, you can put, we tried cabbage the other night, it came out delicious. Um, you know, cooking is about being curious. I think people who maybe see people who can cook is like knowing what they're doing. I mean, we're all just freewheeling in there. I mess things up all the time. Um, I'm also trying new things. I always try to, you know, sneak an extra server plants in where I can, even if it's a cake. 
sometimes that doesn't work, but sometimes it does, you know. <laughs> I saw you did the, was it choc chip cookies with sweet potato in them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I bought um, a sweet potato brownie to the JB Games. I oh, did too. It was amazing. Yeah. 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 So definitely that thing of like not being overwhelmed by choice, um, I think is really like when I entertain, I cook the same thing. I do roast cauliflower salad with a whole, like Middle Eastern with a whole bunch of coriander, mint, preserved lemon. Looks spectacular. It's really simple. Simple. I do a slow roast, roasted shoulder of lamb. And then I do some kind of crunchy cucumber pomegranate salad. It all looks beautiful. Looks amazing. It's really easy to do. And I just do the same thing every time I have people over. That's the big secret, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but now I've got to come up with five, like your mate. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> but, <laughs> but you know, you could argue where the salad is one, the lamb shoulder is another. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I wanted to touch on um, a point you made earlier about when people say, like, I don't have time to cook. And um, something that a, a, a coach said to me many years ago, um, who was really into like food and regenerative agriculture and that kind of thing was saying like our human existence up until around, I don't know, 200 years ago was essentially about working all day to try and procure food. So whether you were like a hunter gatherer uh, or even if you were kind of living in more of an, uh, you know, like post industrial revolution um, or agricultural revolution rather um, you still had to put most of your, you were either out hunting and gathering all day or you were out working all day to try and make enough money so that you could buy food to fucking live. Exactly. Like, so the whole, the whole idea that you don't have enough time now to go to the supermarket and buy prepackaged ingredients that are totally convenient and are totally ready to go and amazing and fucking fresh and whatever, and then throw it together in a way. And you can, you know, you can watch a YouTube video and learn how to make a stir fry. Like it, it, it really, like it doesn't get any easier than what it is now. So it, it, the, the point that I took away from that was just that, respectfully, it's a really shitty excuse to say, I don't have time. Yeah. And I think it's, it's, you know, it's not necessarily the individual's fault, like culturally we're really disconnected with food and where our food comes from. Um, I don't know if you've ever hunted an animal, um, you know, you grow your own veg, like you kind of, you know, you've, you're already there kind of literally hands in the soil doing that stuff. And a, a lot of us aren't. And actually the reason I went to Italy was I did a master's, um, in gastronomy at a, the Slow Food University. And Slow Food was basically started back in the 80s. It started off as a protest against a McDonald's being built in this small Italian town. And it turned into this global movement about the importance of um, basically protecting local food traditions to protect culture and also then to protect biodiversity um, and, yeah, I guess the, the land and the, the cultural traditions. So the more disconnected we got from our food, we've become from our food. Um, I think it's like a societal shift of what's valuable. What's valuable is slamming yourself in an office for nine hours a day and bragging about having no time to train or, you know, not, you know, bragging about that you don't have time to cook, but actually I think we've kind of come to value the wrong things and um, societally and kind of with, with lockdown and COVID, I think over the past, whatever it is now, like, you know, two years nearly, there has been a subtle like reshift and reframing of, oh, like I'm going to admit that I'm going to do a workout in what sh should be my lunch break in the middle of the day, or I'm going to say that I'm, I'm cooking dinner now, or I'm, I'm taking the time to grow something. Like we're starting to put value back on that as a society because we actually know how fun, we're starting to see how fundamentally 
important, you know, that is. Yeah. Yeah. I strongly agree. It's uh, it's almost like the not being able to go into the workplace has kind of given people a bit of an opportunity to sort of uh, reconnect with some things that are maybe a little bit more important. Mm. And it's, it's not like going to be like, of course, going to work is important, but it's like, yeah, you, you I mean, um, the classic one, I think the Batuta advocate, if you follow them on Instagram, yeah. they, just, they did a thing about um, the distinct lack of sourdough, um, sourdough being uh, baked this time around in lockdown. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm like, and my partner, like me, so she started baking last lockdown. And it's been one of the most epic things ever. We have like freshly baked sourdough bread every day of the week. Um, yeah. I'm like, that's so fucking cool. That wouldn't have come about if it hadn't have been for lockdown. No, because before I'd be like, just go and spend the seven bucks or eight bucks on a loaf of sourdough and go to work and, and, and do what societally we think you are is more productive, which is sit at a computer and, and yeah, maybe it's making money, but actually there's, there's a kind of immeasurable value that can't be done with a dollar sign on living a little slower, living more connected to the land, to the food, to the people around you. Um, and, you know, I think that is where food is like a channel that we can actually do that. We can tap into nature. I mean, I, I have no idea. Um, about farming but I know what's in season because I can see what's the cheapest at the fruit and veg shop like I know citrus is in season now I know Brussels sprouts and cruciferous veg are in season I don't know that because I read it in a book I just know it because I'm seeing it um, so you know by being more tapped into this we we start to be more connected to to the land and to others without even really needing to try where can people find your work and, and uh, I mean, you know, there's been a lot of big ideas that, that we've, we've touched on today. And um, it, for people who want to look a little bit deeper and, and, and go a bit further into it, where can they find your stuff? Um, I, well, I'm always happy to have a conversation about food with absolutely anyone. Um, and we'll be very happy to do that in person whenever we can all be back at the gym together. Um, but I guess for now you could follow me. Um, my Insta is where I try to be active. Um, so that's miss at miss Pamplemousse. Uh, Pamplemousse is the French word for grapefruit. Um, and I just, that was my food, food name. And I really, I really like that word. I think it's a beautiful word. And then also I have my website, which is just shannonharley.com, which has a bit about me. Um, some of, some of my pieces, um, some of the people I've met. Um, yeah. For, for anyone who, who wants to know more. I really appreciate, um, you, you taking the time to have this chat today, getting through the technical difficulties at the beginning, but like sharing, sharing your beliefs around this stuff, because I do think um, it's, it's really important like for people to have a value of food and to enjoy the preparation of it and feel, you know, like to be able to enjoy doing it. And like you touched on with your mom, like not, not finding it stressful. Cause if it's stressful, you're not going to do it or you're going to yeah. fucking endure it for many years. Yeah. Um, whereas if you can enjoy it and it can nourish your body, then you just get so much more out of the process. And I think, uh, I think it's a beautiful thing for us to be able to do. Absolutely. I mean, that's a really good point. And I think that's applicable, not just to food, but, um, oh my God, was that book born to run where the journal went and like ran with the Taro Mara and something in that, like inspires me so much when I'm like dying, when I'm trying to run like five Ks or something. And he basically talks about these guys, you know, they'd have this, festival the night before um, where they all drink this corn alcohol and then they'd all be wearing just basically bits of tire on their feet yet they're running these incredible distances so they're not focusing on performance but actually it was like a love of what they were doing and supporting each other and I think that's really important with cooking is like just love it for what it is like if you burn the cauliflower fuck it it tastes better anyway so you know 
just love it, be curious and some things will work and some things won't. And it's like train, you know, like with training, just it's a process. And when you find what works, just remember it or write it down or cook it again and, and it will uh, compound. That's so cool. That's a beautiful closing thought. Awesome, Joey. It's been so good to chat to you. Thanks for having me on and honored to be part of the, the potty. Mate, absolute pleasure. Thank you for coming on. See ya. All right. Thanks for listening, guys. Uh, that was Shannon Harley. Um, she dropped her website there, shannonharley.com. If you want to get any more of her information, do check her out. She's got some really awesome articles out there. If you need any help with your training, you know where to get at us, junglebrothers.com. We're doing plenty of stuff through lockdown. Uh, hopefully this thing's going to end soon, but uh, at the very least you can be training and getting in touch with not only your food, but also your physicality through this time. Uh, thank you for listening. We'll catch you guys next week.